0: And and as always, thanks for joining us. Amid the protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder last summer, more than 260 different organizational entities came forward and said they were making new commitments to combat systemic racism. Some made financial promises, some laid out plans to make their workplaces more diverse, and some created diversity, equity, and inclusion plans in order to see these changes through. But new findings from our next guest show that a lot of these companies may have just been looking for some momentary impunity. Because one year later, not much has changed when it comes to corporate commitments to equity and delivering on them. Of the $50 billion that was pledged by various organizations to promote racial justice, only $250 million has actually materialized. I want I want to say those numbers again because I think they are so astonishing. 50 billion was pledged by these organizations who said they were going to lean into diversity and equity and racial justice, and so far we've seen just 250 million. Here to talk with me about how to better hold these companies accountable and if there's reason to believe that the rest of this money will ever come through. Is someone who is really thinking about this issue these days. William Cunningham is an economist and founder of Creative Investment Research in Washington, D.C. William, welcome to Detroit today.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Delighted to be on. Thank you for the invitation.
0: So let's just start with that number 50 billion pledged, 250 million has actually materialized. What happened? Well, and I'm glad you started there because part of what's happened
1: over the past few days with the attention that this has been getting is that we've been getting uh, information from corporations who've been reaching out to us. So the numbers have changed somewhat. So let me go over the new numbers. Okay. Uh, The number of corporations that we're tracking is now 251 that have made Black Lives Matter pledges. The total dollar amount, has gone up significantly. It's sixty five billion, sixty five point six six eight billion. And again, part of the reason for that is that with the attention that this has gotten, we've gotten a lot of emails from corporations saying, Oh, make sure that our pledge is included in your database, that sort of thing. So that's a good thing. Now, in terms of the amount of money that we can identify that has been allocated so far, that number has increased somewhat also. You might have seen Wells Fargo came out yesterday and said that they had completed their a fifty million dollar investment in in black-owned banks LISC, a community development uh, group, came out and said that they had raised two hundred and fifty million for uh, investments in black banks, black real estate developers, and Bank of America came out and said that they had hit their black bank investment figure. So we've been getting, and again, this is all due to the attention that this, uh, 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 this effort has been getting one year after George Floyd's death. Mm. So these corporations are now reaching out to us and saying, hey, oh, no, no, we met our goals. So what that means is that the new total pledge number is $65 billion, and the amount of money that we can identify that has been allocated so far is $500 million. So it's still far less the, the totals are going up, mm-hmm. and the amount that we can identify is actually going down. So as a percentage, it's, it's falling. Yes. And part, part of the reason is if, if you've been engaged in community development uh, uh, analysis, and I know you have been uh, with respect to the city of Detroit, you know that oftentimes these big banks come out and they make pledges. Oh, we're going we're to lend a billion dollars in loans to this underserved community. The problem is, is that there's no legal requirement that they fulfill that pledge, mm-hmm. at least so far. Now, we think there's a way to um, enforce some of those pledges, and I'll talk about that a little later. But, but right now, if a bank comes out and says, we're going to lend a billion dollars to inner-city Detroit over the course of the next year, and they don't do it, there are limited ways that you could hold them accountable for that lack of performance. Right. Uh, right. So, so that's in part what's, what's going on. The other factor, as an economist, that I can tell you is at play here is this. If you look at these pledges, six companies account for 70%. Of that sixty five billion dollars six companies yeah that is a reflection of the increase in the concentration of wealth income, and assets from a corporate perspective that's called an oligopolistic structure I won't get into the details, but what that means is that you have a narrowing of the distribution mm-hmm. of business assets business activity it's it's facebook it's amazon it's Google, how big these entities are, which means that there are fewer and fewer companies that can make these big commitments. And that's especially true with respect to banks and banking assets. The fact that you've seen increased concentration in the banking sector with fewer and fewer institutions growing to great scale means that when it comes to social efforts like this, there are just fewer companies. That I can make
0: these huge pledges, yeah, yeah, I mean that, that's actually really interesting because it it puts the conversation about diversity and equity in important context that this is not happening in in isolation, uh, but it's happening in modern day America, which has other problems, uh, other dynamics that we would describe as problematic. Um, that, that that come to bear on on this issue uh, the 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 concentration of wealth, of course, is not unrelated to diversity and equity problems, but it is its own it is its own problem and uh, it 's interesting to hear the way that uh, that that is is affecting uh, these pledges uh, I also think it 's really interesting that you point out that the accountability that we have now is what your organization is doing, and things like uh, the, the attention to the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. Uh, by, by re-raising the issue, by re-raising the idea of these pledges and asking the questions, all of a sudden there's more people at the table and there's more money that's, uh, that's come forward.
1: That's right. That's right. I was a little surprised by that, but it's, uh, it's gratifying to see that, you know, our work is definitely being noticed and it's definitely having an impact because all of a sudden we started to get these messages uh, saying, oh, no, 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 here's what we've done, please include this, yeah, that's, that's helpful. Uh, it, it's not entirely a solution to the problem. Uh, what we would like to see is we would like to see some type of trust created uh, that holds all of these corporate IOUs an independent, objective, you know, trust that uh, that basically has the ability to, you know, ping these corporations and ask them about the specifics uh, concerning their activities in this area.
0: Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, it, it does. Absolutely. Uh, I'm talking with William Michael Cunningham. He's an economist and founder of Creative Investment Research in Washington, D.C. We're talking about the promises that we heard from lots of organizations, but especially businesses, a year ago after George Floyd's murder, when they said that uh, this was a wake-up call and that they were going to lean hard into the space of equity and diversity, uh, into racial justice, and uh, they made some dollar commitments uh, at that point—50 billion. That has now grown to $65 billion, uh, but a year later... We're only talking about uh, fifty billion dollars. Fifty million dollars. I'm sorry. Um, no, five hundred. Five hundred million. 000. That's right. Five hundred million. That has actually shown up. So the question is: uh, Were these promises sincere? Are these promises going to be honored sometime in the future? And how do we make sure that uh, all of this doesn't just kind of melt into the background as people move on to other issues and kind of forget about? George Floyd and the important messages uh, his murder had for uh, justice and uh, equity in our society. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call and tell us what you think of businesses pledging to promote racial equity in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Do you work someplace where they have promised to do things differently now uh, because of the attention uh, to those things? What changes have your employers said they might make, uh, and have they followed through on those promises? Have you seen changes to workplace culture? Have you seen changes in hiring? And who's the person in your workplace who's holding your employer accountable for these things, or is there any accountability at all? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 you can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, before we get to listeners, um, uh, William, I want to ask you about whether it really is as difficult as some of these companies are saying to make these changes. I mean, money is one thing, right? Uh, but, but changing a workplace, changing its culture, changing the roster of people who work uh, someplace is is kind of a different task. So so should we be giving them much of a break? I would say no. <laughs> I mean, we've had four hundred years of abuse
1: to to consider how to make these changes. Now I understand that corporate culture is a bear. I mean, look at uh, there's the largest asset manager in the country is a company called BlackRock, and recently one of their Middle Eastern employees came out and detailed uh, the kind of abuse that they were suffering at the hands of managers at that company, many of whom are not what I, what I would call friendly to people from a Middle Eastern culture. So it's, it's tough. I get it. But uh, the capabilities that are embedded in American business are such that when they want to move in a given direction... They move with alacrity and speed. So, And we saw that to some extent last year. You know, when you look at the timeline, um, you know, June, June 6th, there were 30 corporations that came out and made Black Lives Matter pledges on that day. So we, we know that American corporations can move if they want to, uh, but they don't want to. It's tough. Uh, you're facing all types of cultural barriers and issues. I understand that. But, but no, there, there's a lot of expertise, certainly in the black community, certainly in communities of color, that would help these institutions make these changes if they were to pay attention and if they were to want to uh, make those changes. And, you know, I refer to some of the work that we've done in designing investment vehicles that have high social and financial return that address some of these issues. Uh, we're working on an investment vehicle that deals with uh, the elevated levels of black maternal mortality. So you certainly can mm-hmm. make changes very, very quickly, but you know, part of what's gone on is the, the impetus for making those types of rapid changes has definitely declined has definitely declined and this is tough as you well know this is a tough conversation to have with white people sure. They they just don't want they just feel so uncomfortable they just don't want to deal with it uh, so that they have every mental incentive to push this conversation off as soon as they can yeah. so That's part of what we're seeing here. That's part of why you're seeing a lack of of urgency, you know, uh, with respect to these types of issues. I I think it's on us to maintain that level of insistence of of dealing with this issue
0: uh, uh, in in a
1: holistic way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. As always, again, three one three. Five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. 1019 You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we will try to include you that way. Let's start with Maurice in Detroit. Maurice, what's on your mind?
2: Uh, hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, so, yeah, so I run a, a national uh, community organization that does corporate research based here in Detroit called ACRE, and we looked into some of these corporations as well that made statements um, I, either after uh, George Floyd's death and the uprisings or later on in the year uh, saying that Black Lives Matter. And I just want to note that, uh, you know, the financial follow through is one thing, but some of these same corporations have practices inside of their own companies that are really hostile to black employees. Mm. And some of those very corporations gave to some of the politicians that led the white supremacist uprising on January 6th so I, I I think with uh, we need to look at sort of the structural problem with uh, how corporations support structural racism in this country mm-hmm. and can 't just rely on what turn out to be public relations statements uh, after major events um, and really challenge them to make huge changes and that includes in their business practices um, and not just in their in their p r statements
0: yeah uh, Maurice really really great insight uh, i 'm glad you called. And shared that with us. Uh, William, react to what uh, Maurice is saying. Are, are are we focusing on the wrong things here or maybe not focusing on enough kind of change that will make a difference?
1: Yeah, the nature of business today is that you do have these wildly different competing groups that are all applying for attention of, of corporate management. And corporate management, uh, another diverse, not super diverse but uh, you know they respond to these divergent types of interests, as as he correctly pointed out. On the one hand, they're making Black Lives Matter pledges, and then they're making contributions to some politicians who seem to be acting in a way that's that is completely contrary to democratic ideals. So, and, and they feel that they have to. the The corporate managers feel that they have to. Now, here's what we are doing to get at that, and specifically with respect to. Uh, these Black Lives Matter pledges. It's our contention. So, well, you can petition the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission for a rulemaking, uh uh, 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 opinion. And that's what we're doing. We are, most of these companies that have made these pledges, as you know, are publicly traded companies. That means that they come under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. So what we're doing is we're going to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and we are asking for their opinion on the validity and the uh, uh, whether or not these Black Lives Matter pledges are legally binding. In the following sense, if a corporation comes out and tells you that their annual income is five billion dollars, you know, um, unless they have a very good reason they can't come back and say oh you know what we were just kidding we didn't make five billion dollars we only made two billion Mm -hmm. dollars because that information influences their stock price and it influences the value of the corporation we think that these black lives matter pledges are similar because they're being done in an effort to influence the valuation of the corporation either from a public perspective or from a real market perspective remember Part of what happened last year was that employees uh, came out and said, "Hey, I don't want to work for a company that isn't sensitive to this issue and isn't willing to put their money where their mouth is with respect to this issue." So we think that that requiring the SEC to mandate that these companies follow through to the to the to the extent that they can, mm-hmm. you know, subject to business conditions, we understand that. But mandating that these companies either follow through or show why they cannot report out in a legally binding way why they cannot fulfill their promises is the way to go. And the reason we're pursuing that is because we think that that's going to generate a series of corporate issue reports on their Black Lives Matter pledges. Once again, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it does. Um but but I think the other the other thing that Maurice is getting at here is uh the the change in business practice that would also uh, mm. lift up diversity and equity and, and put racial justice at the forefront, which is a it's a slightly different Uh, subject. And it's not what these organizations, a lot of them, even pledged to do, right? It's not even what they came out and said they were willing to do. But I think what Maurice is saying is that unless we get to that space, some of what we're talking about can't make the difference that we want.
1: And I would agree with that. I mean, we're piggybacking on some of the great work being done by Joyce Beatty, uh, from Ohio, Congresswoman from Ohio, who's chair of the House Financial Services Diversity and Inclusion Subcommittee. She's proposed a bill, H.R. 2123, that requires corporations and financial institutions in particular to report out on their diversity and inclusion efforts, their numbers, uh, the policies and procedures that guide those activities. So, you know, our efforts really dovetail in with some of these broader legislative efforts. And that's where we think the real rubber meets the road with respect to policy. You know, if we could get a bill that would or a law that were to say that corporations that make Black Lives Matter pledges must follow through on those Black Lives Matter pledges. Well, obviously, that's that's embedding this at a policy level. And we know that when you do that, corporate behavior definitely changes. In, in point of fact, our SEC rulemaking petition really relies on some prior laws, a Dodd-Frank in particular, that requires corporations be honest with respect to their financial statements and their policy statements. So there, there is an opening for legislative and a legal approach to this. But, but it, that's a, as you well know, that's a long, slow process. Yeah. And I don't think we have time, frankly, <laughs> uh, uh, to, to wait fully for those types of efforts. Yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about businesses and equity, the pledges that were made after George Floyd was murdered. Are we going to see more businesses fulfill those pledges? We also want to continue to hear from you. Do you work someplace where things are changing because of the attention to racial equity and diversity? Are you someplace where you don't think things are changing fast enough? Give us a call. Let us know what's going on in your world. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
3: News, music, culture, culture, and community every day on 101.9 WDET,
1: Detroit's NPR station.
0: I'm WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always... Thanks for tuning in. My guest is William Michael Cunningham. He's an economist and founder of Creative Investment Research in Washington, D.C. We're talking uh, about the big pledges that were made after George Floyd was murdered by businesses who said they wanted to do better on diversity and equity and inclusion. They wanted to do better on racial justice. Uh, They pledged a lot of money, initially $50 billion, now $65 million dollars. Uh, But a year later, we're really only looking at about $500 that has actually materialized. The question is why and what do we do about that? How do we hold these businesses more accountable for the things they said they would do? We would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think of these kinds of pledges by businesses. Are they serious about being more serious about equity and diversity and inclusion and uh, racial justice. Do you think that these are just PR stunts often that businesses indulge in order to seem like they're uh, in line with the things that uh, people are talking about at a given time? Do you work someplace where your employer is talking about doing things differently with equity and and? Uh, what changes have they made? Have you seen changes in workplace culture? Have you seen hiring look different in your business? Uh, and give us a call and let us know how you hold your employer accountable for these kinds of things. If they have promised to do them, who's in charge of making sure that these things get delivered. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter, and uh, uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation that way. I want to read a social media comment here. Michael on Twitter says big corporations are currently flush with capital. Pledging money (laughs) is easy. Right now, spending money is easy, but PR does not lead to structural change. These companies give the great roles to people from privilege. That is structural. Uh, There's another comment, uh, William, about structural change um, in the business world, which, again, is, I think, kind of lurks behind all these questions. Are there bigger things we should be thinking about um, in terms of the way that business should conduct itself? That would lend itself more uh, to racial justice uh, and and, and equity. Uh, I also want to ask you about um, uh, 30 years ago when we saw Rodney King beaten uh, by uh, the Los Angeles police on a on a roadside. Um yeah. you know I was I was I think I was 20 when that happened. I was in college um and and I remember uh writing a column for the college newspaper at the time about how yeah it was shocking to see this uh but th- there was an attitude among police officers um, that, you know, people like myself, uh, had experienced as a young driver, a young black driver here in Detroit, um, that, that led to this kind of behavior that, uh, that it's all kind of linked together. That's 30 years ago. Uh, yeah. and we saw all kinds of people come out and say, well, it's going to be different now. We, we, we hear, uh, we hear these complaints, we understand, and we're going to go in a different direction. Of course, when George Floyd was murdered, uh, we saw The same thing happened. Are you more optimistic that this is more real coming from these businesses today than it was then? Well,
1: that's a complicated uh, answer. Um, I'm somewhat more optimistic. And let me give a shout out to Andrew Tabor from Emory University, who's one of my interns. I think he's going to go work for the Atlanta Fed, Hmm. uh, who has, I think, stayed up all night. calculate that $65 billion figure. Uh Uh, When I see guys like him um, who are really passionate about this stuff, I feel somewhat optimistic. On the other hand, um, if you look on our website, there's an article from 1992 in the Wall Street Journal that talks about the work that we did post-Rodney King with the Episcopal Church of the U.S. in creating a community development investment program following rodney king so you know you're exactly right to point out that this is not new this has happened before um uh you know we keep coming at this over and over again and is it getting better i gotta be honest here from our perspective no and 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 we're not i'm just a numbers guy we're numbers guys so look at two numbers number one Black Mm homeownership hasn't changed since 1968, the Mm -hmm. percentage. It's actually gone down. I mean, that's just, with all of these community development efforts, all of this stuff, you still haven't been able to move that number. The second number to take a look at is, of course, black life expectancy, uh, maternal mortality of black women. Uh, All of these statistics have gotten markedly worse, and that is very, very uh, concerning to us. So... You know, I hope that I hope that explains kind of where we are
0: on. Sure. This. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, the the things that we're talking about in terms of hiring or supporting uh, minority businesses um, are, are 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 important, but but again, they fit into a context. I mean, that home ownership number is a reflection of opportunity it's a reflection of uh financial stability over time and it's a reflection of um you know the discrimination that still holds 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 people back and and you know i, I i'm not at all throwing stones at the businesses that are that are talking about these things but um but but some in some ways uh we, we still need lots of other hands on deck here i guess is is what i would say um Uh, I I think that's
1: right. And the other issue, not to cut you off, is, again, this over-concentration of economic assets in fewer and fewer hands really impacts the entire society and makes it much more difficult to make these types of changes uh, uh, quickly in a way that's effective uh, in this economy. So one of the things you need to do is simply reduce the concentration of economic resources. The other factor that we see as economists is the growth of kind of the over-financialization of of the economy. Larger and larger financial institutions controlling more and more and fewer small and medium-sized financial institutions. This is the issue with black-owned banks. And I know you have one in Detroit that's a very good black-owned bank. They're just too small. Mm-hmm. especially in an environment where the mega banks are really growing to enormous size, and they're basically able to control the market.
0: Um, you also note that there's a change from these businesses explicitly pledging to help black businesses to now saying they're going to help minority businesses. That's right. A lot of people use those words interchangeably. They are not the same. They don't have the same meaning. Uh, right. uh, but, but talk about why it's happening and why you see it as a problem
1: well I'll, it's a problem because we know that uh, the shift in focus from black businesses to minority businesses means that black businesses will benefit less the group, the category, the demographic that benefited the most from the civil rights era of the 60s and 70s were white women so what that does is that dilutes. The economic resources going to the black community, because now all of a sudden you have all these uh, everybody and their brother uh, who gets benefits from these programs uh, without necessarily suffering the brunt of the economic damage. I mean, you and again the numbers are very clear with respect to who's damaged by white supremacy and uh, 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 economic policies that that damage black people and who benefits from uh, corporate and government programs that are targeted to minority businesses. So it's a less socially efficient approach to this issue to say that you're going to now suddenly deal with minority businesses. And from us, from a, again, I'm the data guy, from a data perspective, you know, we've decided to include some of those minority business pledges in that $65 billion figure, and it's tough for us because if a corporation comes out and says, in honor of George Floyd, we're going to increase our minority business spending by $3 billion, well, they have the right to say that. We, on the other hand, have the right to say, well, that's going to be dilutive of efforts to actually increase uh, the economic well-being of the African-American community. You know, other groups are going to benefit, again, specifically white women. Uh, other groups are going to, going to benefit. And you're not going to have the same type of social return, social impact that your, your PR statements would lead the public to believe that you are seeking. So th- this has been one of the
0: issues. Yeah. Uh, we've got another social media comment I want to inject into the conversation here. Confused American on Twitter says, my international company has had many conversations and pledges in 2021 to include more diversity. What they haven't been clear on is whether these positions are new or backfill. Knowing that would help determine the timing of the efforts at hand. Uh, that's a really interesting uh, question uh, in addition to, to what we've been talking about, William, is is how you achieve the diversity that these businesses uh, are talking about
1: well we see that too we see a lot of positions going to african-american women love the sisters uh, just like uh, uh will smith and ali you know nothing like the sisters uh, but we also understand that these are jobs and that they can be granted or taken away at any point in time and that is problematic so so from the standpoint of analyzing the long-term Economic benefit to the black community. Love to see it. Grateful to see uh, the uh, positions that are being created, and that are being allocated to African Americans, again, African American women specifically. But we must be aware that what the black community really needs is something called an industrial policy. We need to think about which industries, which jobs, and we kind of do this informally. And I joke around that black people's industrial policy is the 150 jobs in the NBA. And we know that that's not big enough because we don't own the teams. We don't own the distribution mechanisms for the content that is provided by that institution. So we need another industrial policy that focuses black attention and black efforts on the most beneficial economically, uh, jobs, industries, you know, the the way that we can actually uh, uh, really survive and thrive, not only through this crisis, but for the long term. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, William Michael Cunningham, it was really great to have you here for uh, this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much for for hosting me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little locally about this uh, conversation. We're going to talk with two Detroiters who teamed up to write a new book about creating and implementing meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to continue our discussion about the ways that organizations are trying to adapt to changing social norms around addressing the various consequences of systemic racism. And we want to focus now on how that's happening in our office, offices in other places of work To get some insight on this, I'm joined by two Detroit women who are no strangers to this topic. Marlon Williams is a two-time Fortune 500 diversity, equity, and inclusion officer with more than 20 years' experience and is also former deputy chief information officer for the city of Detroit. Marlon Williams, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, do we have her? Do you have you there, Marlon?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Thank yep, you. There you, you. Can you
0: hear me? <laughs> I yeah. hear you now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Also with us is Marlo Rencher. She is an entrepreneur, anthropologist, and educator with over two decades of experience in startup and small business development. Uh, Marlo, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Yeah. And uh, the two of them have joined forces to co-author a new book, which is called Hard Reset, Framing Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion – as the new normal. In the book, Rencher and Williams explore how to create lasting change in our workplaces and beyond. Uh, so I want to start with uh with just your the two of you react your, your reactions to um what we were talking about before, which is these pledges that businesses have made to change the way they think about equity and inclusion and diversity in the wake of George Floyd's murder. We were talking with someone who was talking about the the, the money side of that that was pledged uh, and not much of it has has come in so far. But but on this question of uh, changing the workplace, changing the culture, changing the makeup of the workplace, uh, how sincere are you guys seeing those pledges to be in terms of what the outcomes have been. Uh, Marlon Williams, I'll start with you.
4: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, and thanks for the question. So, you know, I, like you said, I won't speak to the money side, but you're right, Stephen, you know, was, it, there was an uptick in in the use of the words diversity, equity, and inclusion last year. There was an uptick in job posting for diversity and inclusion consultants, whatever, whatever you want to call it, last year. And so I did stop and pause and say, okay, so what do we do when we have new people who are entering this space and organizations who some, let's be quite honest, some who are 100% bought in, they want to do this, and some are still trying to find their way. So the thing I would say is that these organizations are going to need something that is substantive. I mean, something that is going to be a a game changer, something that is going to be long-lasting. So many times um, we find that in some corporations it is – It's a silo. It's a silo type of initiative. DE&I needs to permeate throughout the entire organization, and it has to be tied to strategic business objectives. It Mm -hmm. is not a party in February or a cultural celebration. It is tied to metrics. It is tied to data. Um, And so I'll stop there because I could keep going. I'll let Marlo.
0: (laughs) No, that's a great great point to make. Uh, Marlo, uh, what's your thought on that?
3: Yeah, I completely agree with what Arlen said. And I also think tying into what your previous guest said, um, there's structural change that has to go on. So when you, you make a pledge, you don't quite have the knowledge around how diversity, equity, and inclusion permeates through your, you know, the implications of it and how it permeates through your corporation. Then, you know, you can make this pledge, but then you realize that you have all, let's say, these frontline workers where you have such a a, a a huge difference in pay, such a huge difference in terms of quality of life and workspace um, uh, experience. So we're talking about basically the whole way that these corporations are even structured. So you know, as we have these new people coming into the into the space, and they're thinking um, they might be coming into situations where they are thinking about, oh, okay, this is just an event based type of initiative, Um, and then to really get at um, some of the real problems, we're talking about restructuring the organizations and thinking about it in a much more strategic um, way you you know, it's not surprising that there is a lag in terms of what actually has gotten done. Um, So
0: there are a lot of books that have come out on this topic since last year, but tell me, how... Is hard reset different? What sets it apart, Marlon?
4: Well, I would first say what sets it apart is the um, the real life experiences that Marlo and I have. You know, and just speaking for myself, I don't know if there's anything that I haven't seen, Stephen, or anything <laughs> that I, there are things I would like to unhear, <laughs> but things that I've heard. Uh, so it's just taking that real life experience and pouring it into this book. Um, also speaking from a place where we are talking about the data. We are talking about the metrics and why that's important. Um, the other thing about this book that I love is that you can walk away from this book in any chapter and there are things that you can do today or things that you can implement tomorrow. Sometimes the conversations around DE&I can be daunting. People are afraid for whatever reason. This book, it, it eases people into the topic. But it is hard hitting. It hits home. It is um, based around fact. And then we also have a a part in the book that a lot of people don't speak to. And I think that this is really um, unique to our book. We talk about self care around this work. Mm. You know, I can speak for myself and Marlo. You know, this work can be heavy um, when you are a practitioner because we are empaths, We are seeing the injustices. Inequalities, and we take that home with us because we care and we're passionate about the work. But you can't continue to do this work unless you take care of yourself, and it's also self-care for our allies and those who really want to get into this work. Those are just a few of the things that set this book apart.
0: Hmm. Uh, Marlo, I would imagine that your your background and experience uh, informed a lot of the things here too. Um, but, but talk about how the pandemic and disparities that became so evident during the pandemic informed how you were going to write this book. It seems to me that there's something about this time that yeah. framed, framed this conversation.
3: Absolutely. It is um, very much a, a product of this time where some of the conversations that we had about inequity, um, had had to it just kind of faced facts you actually were in a situation where you saw the impact you see how your coworkers, who um are in more vulnerable situations you know had more and more tragedy that were happening in their lives and how you had some folks who during the pandemic you know it was kind of like a um it, it was it was an a, almost a positive impact for them. They got some of the benefits. So there's this huge disparity um, in terms of, uh, you know, experiences of this, this kind of global crisis that really exacerbated the differences between, you know, one group, a, a certain group of people who are living in certain circumstances and another group. So um, that really is a big deal. And then we have this racial reckoning where for nine plus minutes, we see someone's life taken mm-hmm. um, where you can't, um, you, you know, you have to have a conversation with yourself at, at a certain point. Um, and we, you know, there are folks, particularly in the Black community, who none of this stuff is a surprise, um, but for the entire world to to see it and be reminded of it, Basically, we talk about this hard reset because it is a time where you cannot ignore it anymore. It is so in your face to a point where you have to kind of take a side. You have to determine what are you going to do going forward because looking backward wasn't working. Yeah.
0: So so I want to talk quickly about how this plays out locally, uh, the Detroit business community. Um, you're both locals. Um, what have you seen from the business community here, and do you, do you feel like they've not just gotten the message, but internalized uh, the cultural change that uh, that that is necessary to 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 make these things significant, and in, instead of just surface? Uh, Marla, I'll start with you this time.
3: You know, I. I hate to sound cynical about this, and maybe it's because I haven't circulated enough, but I haven't um, seen enough of the change. I also know that this change is not a surface change. So Mm -hmm. I don't expect that things could happen very quickly. I do expect that people are really starting to reckon on how much they have to change in order to make something significant happen. It can't just be implementing a Juneteenth holiday policy. It can't just be, you know, just uh putting out a statement if you're going to do those things. And so I think it is, I think we're at a point now of corporations figuring out that this takes more than what um, they originally thought. And I am not sure whether or not um you know kind of on a on a on a more widespread basis, people are willing to make the change. On the other side, you have employees and stakeholders and all that kind of, I think more and more, you have them kind of demanding some changes. Yeah, And so that, that I am seeing that interplay happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Marlon? Well,
4: I, 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 Marlo, I don't think you sound cynical at all. Um, I would say <laughs> pretty much the same, you know, Stephen, I would say there's some yes, there's some no, but... To go back to that, briefly on that money conversation and to tie it into this, I think a lot of, when I say that some know, there are some, some organizations because they don't know what to do, that's where you see the money show up. And when you, if you were to dig into the data, you don't see the actual change in the organization. So how are we advancing um, people of color in the organization, are the developmental opportunities for people in the organization, are they being paid the same? So my thing is the money is fine. Give all the donations you want, but are you effectuating change within your organization? And that's where that data and those metrics are so important. And it's also important to have that DNI representative in there. And I hate the word disruptive but right now that's all I have, disrupting and asking those questions. And then lastly, the the change that I really see happening is that Employees are demanding this. It's kind of like, we want to know what you're doing. Wh- how? Wh- what is your stance on a cause? The, like I said, the money is fine. So I see both sides of the corn, coin where I do see both these things happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of businesses deciding to lean harder into the diversity and equity space. Let's go to Craig in Southfield. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Okay.
2: Um, I, can't, I, I have to take a deep breath here. Um, <laughs> I can't mention the company that I work for, but I've been with them for 30 plus years. Um, I, our company has the DEI going full blast. And I, I
1: appreciate it. How, however, I'm, I'm taking aback, back and I have to step back as a black male because... George Floyd dies, and all of a sudden, everybody wants to jump on to the DEI bandwagon. Mm-hmm. And that's fine and dandy. There's a lot of benefits coming out of it. But where was all this at before George Floyd died? Yeah. And are you doing it because it's the right thing to do, or does it prop your company up to yeah. look good because we are the company that cares?
0: Yeah, Craig. And I'm
1: having real difficulty grasping
0: with this. Yeah. Craig, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. But that's a great point to raise. I'm glad you called. We've only got about 30 seconds left. Uh, Marlon Williams, I'll give you a chance to, to try to answer, Craig. Should we yeah, trust? Craig,
4: I'll try. Craig, I feel your pain and your questions are great. And what I would say to you is take that energy and you want to take it to your company and ask those questions. So, Like I said about being a disruptor, you want a disruptor. You are uh, a valued employee, and you have a right to, to, ask, to ask the question. And I would start there.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Marlon Williams and Marlo Rencher, thanks for joining us. The book is Hard Reset. Thanks so much for being with us on Detroit Today.
4: Thank you for having us, Stephen. Absolutely.
0: That's going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday for a special looking at NPR's 50-year anniversary. And on Tuesday, we'll be back for a conversation with Michigan Attorney General Dana Nassel about wrongfully convicted Michiganders and the first exoneration as part of her new conviction integrity unit. I also want to say a special thanks today to senior intern Nora Ryan for her help in producing today's show. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.